Andrew Talks to Chefs is an independent podcast. For current and past episodes, Andrew's blog, contact information, and more, please visit andrewtalkstochefs.com. To support us, please visit patreon.com slash andrewtalkstochefs. Enjoy the show. Andrew Talks to Chefs is brought to you in part by Mies, the revolutionary new interactive recipe tool for professional chefs and cooks. Designers use Figma, photographers use Photoshop. Now, finally, chefs have the right tool for recipe development, management, training, and evolution with Mies. Like Mise en Place, the term that inspired its name, Mies helps chefs and cooks be organized, ready, and efficient, save time and money, eliminate mistakes and redundancies, and guarantee consistency, whether in one restaurant or across a multi-unit company. Visit GetMees, that's G-E-T-M-E-E-Z dot com forward slash Andrew to learn more and sign up for a free trial membership. Andrew Talks to Chefs is brought to you in part by San Pellegrino Sparkling Natural Mineral Water. For more than 120 years, San Pellegrino has been inspiring people to savor life and tasteful moments around the table. As chefs and restaurants have evolved worldwide, San Pellegrino has always been there to complement the food they serve, the moments they create, and to support them in both good and challenging times. Learn more at sanpellegrino.com. I'm Massimo Bottura. This is Amanda Cohen. This is David Kinch. This is Mike Anthony. This is Huni Kim. This is Amanda Freitag. This is Richard Blaze. This is Paul Kahn. This is Curtis Stein. This is Stephen Harris. This is Missy Robbins. And you're listening to Andrew Talks to Chefs. Food became this amazing tool for me to access and unlock parts of that identity and parts of that culture. So I fell in love with it really quickly from a young age. And food was by no means on my radar as a career or a destination for me, but very much the universe pulled a beautiful trick on me. And (laughs) it became something that went from something I love to do for friends to something I love to do for large groups of strangers. And then that turned into a business and a brand and eventually a restaurant and this cookbook. That is the voice of Zoe Ajanya, author of the beloved book, Zoe's Ghana Kitchen, which publishes in the United States for the first time today, October 19th, 2021. Zoe is our guest on Andrew Talks to chefs. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Andrew Talks to Chefs. I am your host, Andrew Friedman. And as promised last Friday, just a couple of days ago, we are going to be offering more shows with a little more regularity than we usually do. We're going to be mixing up current events, interviews with authors of new books, people who are opening new restaurants, intermingling those sorts of interviews with our traditional long-form biographical interviews. Today's interview falls into the former camp. It is an interview with Zoe Ajanya, who today She's published the first U.S. edition of a book that she actually wrote several years ago called Zoe's Ghana Kitchen. And it's a terrific book. Zoe was a terrific guest. We've actually never met in person. We interviewed remotely the other day when she was in London, but Zoe has actually just relocated to New York City. And as regular listeners know, I live just north of New York City in Westchester County. I'm in the city 
quite often. I see on Instagram that Zoe's starting to make the rounds of the city with friends and visiting restaurants. So Zoe, I am looking forward, hopefully before too long, to being in the same place as you so that we can say a quick hello in person. In the meantime, I quite enjoyed the chat we had the other day. Zoe has a pretty fascinating story. She grew up in London, the daughter of a Ghanan father and an Irish mother, and learned how to cook just a handful of Ghanan dishes from her dad. And then as she grew into maturity, uh, started uh, cooking a little bit uh, for friends, cooking a little bit for fundraisers and things like that to raise some money, started making trips to Ghana to learn more about the cuisine in its native environment, in its homeland, the place from which it originated, brought all of that knowledge back to London, started doing pop-ups, supper clubs, had a restaurant, and then, of course, this terrific book. She also has a website, which I linked to from the episode description for today's show at the Andrew Talks to Chefs website, and also on our Apple podcast listing, where links are functional. I don't think I need to say much more by way of introduction to Zoe. I do have just two quick notes for all of you. One is that by virtue of last week's show uh, with Timothy Pranger, who's the proprietor of the Little Red Door in Paris, very often when we have guests from countries other than the United States, we start to uh, amass a, a whole new set of listeners. If you are one of those people you may want to go back to the beginning of our catalog, which dates all the way back to uh, late summer of 2017. Uh, that's when we were focused exclusively on long-form biographical interviews. A lot of our content over the last year has, uh, I think, quite logically been uh, devoted to or interspersed with material uh, interviews, reports having to do with the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, I'm proud of all the shows, but if you really want to get a sense of the show and its history, you may want to go back to the beginning. And a related note there is that we used to be with a not-for-profit network. We are no longer with that network. We've been independent now for almost two years, but the first 97 or so shows still bear the station IDs and advertising from our former host network. Please don't be confused by that. The one and only place uh, in terms of a website for the show is andrewtalkstochefs.com, where you can stay current uh, with the show, with any blog posts I might do. Uh, and you can also subscribe if you don't subscribe to podcasts, uh, but you'd rather get notices of new shows in your email inbox. You can subscribe uh, at the andrewtalkstochefs.com website as well. Before getting to our feature interview, as always, our feature interview is presented by Sam Pellegrino, whether in life or on the plate. Every chef has a story to tell. Sam Pellegrino proudly helps them share those stories in their restaurants and right here on Andrew Talks to Chefs. The perfect complement to great food and meaningful interactions, Sam Pellegrino is delighted to be part of the conversation. Learn more at sanpellegrino.com. And with that, let's get to my conversation with Zoe Anjanya, author of Zoe's Ghana kitchen. Here you go. 
Zoe, welcome to the show. Can you please, before we start talking, only because remote interviews are not the most normal thing for us here, can you tell listeners where we are speaking to you from? Oh, yeah. Hello, Andrew. I'm currently in London, southeast, no, east London. Sorry, I forgot where I was. I'm in east London, Hackney Week. <laughs> Congratulations on, what do we call this? Is it a new edition of the book? Is it a new American edition of the book? What's the proper way to refer to the current iteration? It's a gift from God, I think, for me anyway. It's the fourth edition of um, my cookbook, Zoe's Garner Kitchen, which is the first US edition. So it's having a brand new launch in the States this fall, October 19th. And I'm very excited about it. The book itself was written first back in 2015, published in the UK in 2017 by Octopus. We've had a couple of other editions in the UK just because it's been quite popular, thankfully. And uh, I'm recently emigrated to the States. So while I'm in London right now, I'm in packing up my flat as it happens to go back to New York on Thursday, which is where I'm now resident. So in terms of timing for me, it's fabulous to have my book come out just as I land. Um, and get to speak to wonderful people in food like yourself about the book. So yeah, I'm very excited. It's got 70 updated, revised recipes for the US audience, written for a US audience. And you know, what was originally traditional Ghanaian recipes remixed for the modern kitchen, it is that. But now the canon has expanded quite a bit in the last, you know, sort of 10 years of West African cuisine, both in the UK and definitely here in the States. You know, it's more now that plus an introduction to new African cuisine or modern you know African gastronomy I suppose because there are so many more people now who are exploring foods from home in new ways and like this book is very much a dedication to tradition but also it's like fun and unusual and different new ways to have these ingredients and flavors in your kitchen, in your life, and make, you know, make food fun. Well, first of all, I did not realize that you had relocated to the States. So welcome as a fellow New Yorker. Um, <laughs> glad to have you here. Uh, I'd love to uh, see if you agree with what I'm about to say. Uh, reading through the book and getting ready to speak to you and looking at some other interviews you've done and whatnot, I feel like your life, at least in terms of your relationship to this food that you write about, kind of breaks down almost into a classic, what the uh, dramatist would call a classic three-act structure. (laughs) It it seems that you, you know, grew up in the UK learning mostly from your father about this, this type of cuisine. Then you started making trips to Africa, to West Africa, to, to learn about it uh, in its place of origin. And then you became someone who teaches others about it, both through cooking for them and, and writing and speaking about it. Is that a fair structuring of your professional life? That's a very good treatment. I mean, you should write that up together for Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's so, pretty much it. You know, my story, if you like, is that my mother's Irish, my father's Ghanaian, so I'm Ghanaian Irish, but I'm a third culture kid in England. So I have these two immigrant parents. I'm the first English person in my entire family. And then I have these two interesting cuisines and cultures that I, you know, grow up on, but on a council estate in southeast London. So there was an interesting, you know, dynamics in my household, let's say that, but also in interesting palette and um, what was absent from my childhood in congruence was you know Ireland being geographically super close and very cheap and accessible to get to I spent a lot of my childhood 
in Ireland, having a lovely time, picking mussels and clams off beaches, fishing for, you know, trout and salmon and digging potatoes and having this glorious idyllic existence. Then I'm back in southeast London in a concrete jungle and, you know, Dad's bringing home this amazing other range of textures, smells and aromas and tastes, things like fermented maize dough, which we call kenke or gar kenke, which is very similar to tamale, and things like shito's hot pepper, traditional condiment made with smoked crayfish and smoked prawns and it's really heady and beautiful and then you know all these amazing smoked fishes and you know just this very this playground of food but on a more serious note for both my parents you know food was this really important tool for them to re-engage with what was familiar and safe and nostalgic you know home and my grandmother on my Irish side used to send my mum these packages of galty cheese and tato crisps and red lemonade and all these glorious goodness um, and we all loved it and looked forward to it for that connection and on the other side my dad was as I said bringing home these ingredients and then having this kind of meditative solo journey home through the cooking and the eating um, and that is something I cottoned on to very quickly because I was like hang on a minute I can see what's going on here. He's going back to Ghana. I want to go to Ghana because we didn't have any um, Ghanaian family or culture around us growing up, my sister and I, in London. So food became this amazing tool for me to access and unlock parts of that identity and parts of that culture. So I fell in love with it really quickly from a young age. And being a latchkey kid, you know, all of us who are in our 40s now pretty much cooked for ourselves growing up, and that's what I did. And I cooked for friends, and that's just something I didn't stop doing. And, you know, food was by no means on my radar as a career or a destination for me, but very much the universe pulled a beautiful trick on me. And, <laughs> and yeah, it became something that went from something I love to do for friends to something I love to do for large groups of strangers. And then that turned into a business and a brand and eventually a restaurant and this cookbook. So yeah, that's why I say blessed to have a fourth edition of it out now. But yeah, that's the story. I went back to Ghana, collected more recipes beyond the 10 or so that I acquired from my dad growing up. And then um, yeah, I've spent the last 10, 12 years sharing my passion for the flavors and the ingredients and teaching people about them and teaching people to cook it. And you do share in this book, I mean, it is technically a cookbook, but you do share uh, in a couple of what I guess we could maybe call interludes, the story of your first visit back to Ghana. I'm curious to know though, and you do say, you do describe yourself as self-taught. You say the one and only cooking lesson you ever had was by your father <laughs> at home. You know, people that I I know who have learned about the food of their heritage before actually making a proper visit back to taste it in its place of origin have spoken to me sometimes of their gratefulness that they first got to experience it detached from its homeland. Mm. They feel like it enabled them to apply a certain amount of imagination to it, to be a little less bound by kind of uh, the stricture of it. I'm wondering how you yourself feel about the fact that you, you know, first learned, as you said, about 10 recipes uh, in London uh, from your father, but without really the the reference points that you developed a little bit later in life when you started making these visits. How do you think it affected you that you started learning about the food of Ghana in London? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point and question. I think, you know, and I think this happens for everybody from an immigrant background. Well, 
and maybe I shouldn't speak that widely, but okay, let me stick with my experience. I think growing up and having your, you know, a, a man, your dad cook, who at a time like men weren't famously in the kitchen regularly, certainly not West African men. So he had basic ingredients, basic tools, and he was recreating as close to what he could recreate, right, with what was available to him at the time. And so there is that kind of re-navigation and then there's another re-navigation by virtue of the fact that when my dad wasn't around it was my mum who was recreating those dishes and I'm sure along you know her journey with it there were extrapolations and changes and so interestingly it was probably not until I went to Ghana that I had anything close to what people would call traditional or big big air quotes authentic Ghanaian um experiences because both of those you know what I mean it's like there was changes necessarily happening by virtue of what was available to where my dad was so going back to Ghana and experiencing it um you know in a more traditional sense was really really important obviously from a learning curve point of view but also to note just how abundant the freshness of ingredients were available to me to play with when I did come back to London. Because had I not gone there, had I not gone to Jamestown and been watching the fishermen, you know, bring the, the catches in in the morning, seeing the octopus, seeing the squid, seeing the prawns, seeing the barracuda, seeing them smoking fishes, seeing the processes, eating shito with fried fish with the fishermen, you know, down in the harbour, if I didn't have those experiences, I always say that you have to go back to go forward in a way. And in some respects, it was necessary. A, it was amazing to experience this amazing abundance of fresh herbs, spices and seafood that I would then be able to have license to be creative with when I came back to London, but also to be in my grandmother's house and have three different women from three different tribes, cooked all of three different ways, gave me also creative license around the nuances that can happen between household to household and recipe to recipe. But also this further kind of grounding with all of that, it meant that I didn't feel um, shy anymore about extrapolating because what I could understand is those nuances between households, but also that Ghanaian food had never had a canon behind it, right? It hasn't ever had this kind of extrapolation that other cuisines have had, like the French and Italian. And there's no long written history, at least, of the journey of that food. So, and given where we were contextually at the time with um, this influx of Afrobeats, this influx of African print and fashion and exploding everywhere, it was a moment in time where the food and the culture could all collide, I suppose. And then it could be new and different. And so then, it, you know, making it contemporary felt okay for me, having been back to see what was there before this new idea I was having. I was struck uh, reading through the book at just this confluence of it. It seems almost like the universe put a lot of dots for you to connect in your own <laughs> life. You started cooking uh, in part to raise money to fund your education as a writer. Is that accurate? Well, yes and no. I'll explain. So my journey was to be a writer. In 2010, I'd been traveling around the States for a few months and I'd come back to London having spent all of that money, having a great time, right? And there was an opportunity to make money. But um, during outside my front door, Hackney Wicked Arts Festival, that's the first time I sold peanut butter stew as like a thing. And that was the year I was preparing to do the MA in Gold, at Goldsmiths in Creative and Life Writing. 
And in between, in that year, it became apparent very quickly that Ghana Kitchen as an idea, just feeding people once a month for supper club was A, really fun, great energy, good times. (laughs) And it meant that I could support myself through the MA without having to take a full-time job. And I really wanted to focus on reading and writing. So that was the ideal dream scenario for me. So that's really what how I started it. It was just something I was doing to support myself while I was writing. But by the end of the MA, Ghana Kitchen as a business was offering to sponsor the... uh... (laughs) You know when you get to the end of... uh... Have you been to university, Andrew? Do you know when people are doing kind of bake sales and fundraisers for something that the student body needs to um, put on an event or something? Yes, At the end of the course, we were having one of these meetings and it was about... Anyway... Suffice to say, over the course of under two years, you know, that's how much the business grew as a side project is that I was just going to fund that rather than, you know, make people bake cakes for six months to raise the money. Nothing wrong with bake sales, but um, it's just a trajectory. It was very timely and of a moment where London's food scene didn't have anything like West, you know, contemporary, modern or even traditional West African food on its radar and mainstream. And so... You know, I was we Ghana Kitchen was just providing this bridge between, um, you know, the diaspora having this new relationship with its own cuisine, but also this new audience being introduced something new to them and different to them. What was your own learning curve in terms of both your comfort level uh, with with uh, cooking uh, and cooking for? people and you know paying guests what was that evolution like for you as someone who is essentially self-taught what do you feel like you had a natural aptitude in the kitchen was it something that took years for you to develop the confidence to the point that you could do pop-ups and supper clubs and all this sort of thing what was your evolution on that front um weirdly it was very fast honestly i'm you know i think mostly driven by my entrepreneurial side like yeah i've always had that entrepreneurial hustle as how we used to describe it right but um so I'd, i'd run several businesses before in the past from video production to events companies and i'd worked in pr i'd worked in marketing so i had all these skill sets Anyways, but you're right, like the cooking side of it. I guess I, I got confident initially pretty quickly because of the the demand. And because the demand was so high, I was cooking a lot. Like it was, it was I, I can't even describe to you how much I could. Like we, I would do 60 covers a night and maybe sometimes, on some occasions, turn 60 covers for two sittings, you know, twice in one night with no restaurant background or you know it was just very much learn learning in the heat of the kitchen and (laughs) just doing it just by experience it's not necessarily how I would recommend everybody to do it you know but it's what I I had to do to learn the fastest way um and obviously mistakes were made along the way but yeah I just learned through doing it and doing a lot of it like doing a lot of supper clubs a lot of pop-ups a lot of residencies a lot of catering and just saying yes every time and accepting the challenge of course I didn't know what I was doing every single time of course I was scared and of course I thought oh my god I'm gonna beep this up but um you know nine times out of ten it was a resounding success and maybe on the tenth occasion people would be forgiving Right. Well, that's not unlike that's not unlike that's not unlike uh, the ratio for people who do train professionally. <laughs> you know, it is funny. I just heard you say the word catering, and I just have to mention it. I, I I don't think this is really a spoiler, but I love the story you tell in the book about going back to Ghana, and I forget who says it to you, but you were describing 
you know, supper clubs and pop-ups and whatnot. And somebody says to you, oh, well, we call that catering. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I thought <laughs> it was such a just reality check on the way we kind of think of ourselves. I mean, I just thought that was such a charming story. Um, Cut down to size very quickly. (laughs) Getting to the book, you know, I was struck uh, reading the book at how accessible it felt. Uh, I've I've never, I mean, maybe, maybe uh, I've used certain ingredients and from recipes at home. I've never engaged in what I would call, you know, Ghana or West African cooking, but, I, I feel like, uh, if you don't mind a compliment, I feel like you break it down in the early pages of the book um, into its essential parts. I feel like you do a, a really wonderful job uh, of, of educating people about uh, certain um, threads or through lines that maybe wouldn't be familiar that you know you think will be useful in guiding them on this on this culinary adventure. And then you make a comparison that I thought was so smart, and it was, I thought it was doubly smart. Because as you say, it doesn't have a name except for the one that you give to it. But the the West African equivalent of what the Italians call sofrito or what the French refer to as mirepoix, this sort of not universal, but but a very nearly omnipresent base to so many recipes. I wonder if you could just describe what I'm talking about for listeners. Yeah, chale sauce is what I said. That, I don't know if I mentioned this earlier, but when we talk about um, cuisines and canons of cuisines. We think of the French, we think of the Italians, obviously. And what we don't think of is Ghana. Nobody thinks of the canon of Ghanaian cuisine because one hasn't been written until very recently, right? And I am one of a number of voices who are starting to document the narrative of recipes because we have this hundreds and hundreds of years of oral history as opposed to written history. So there's that, there's capturing. Um, oral traditions and stories in in many cases for the first time not just me and my book but other people who are are doing this and you're right and thank you so much for talking about the accessibility here because that was crucial obviously to me and both for both the diaspora and for a new audience because so many because of this oral history so many Ghanaians don't know how to cook you know and when the book came out I got letters from across the world from Ghanaians saying thank you thank you because my mum didn't use measures and I didn't know you know, like my grandmother is the measure by sight and touch and pinch and all of these things. And so chale sauce, it occurred to me, was like this. It's basically tomatoes, bell pepper, some onion, some heat, uh, salt, tomato puree, um, and some, you know, a couple of basic ingredients blended together, ginger, that include some of the most common elements that you find across so many of the staples, so okra soup, groundnut soup, jollof sauce, red red, androbe fro, many of the fish stews in there. Anything that's like a stew, a soup or a sauce will have that blend of ingredients. So I just decided to put them together into its own kind of recipe and call it chale sauce. And chale, the why chale, I suppose, is the question, is because that word in um, fanti, or is it tree actually, uh, Let's go for tree because that's what, mainly what's spoken. Um, it may, means friend or pal or buddy or, you know. So it's kind of this, it's like a, I'm calling it a Ghanaian kind of passata. Um, in Nigeria, they have something similar called atadindin. That's the name they have for it. Um, and I might be wrong. Maybe there is a word, uh, a phrase I have not yet come across that would describe something like this. And I'm open. If everybody knows it, please tell me. But I decided to call this chale sauce because it's a really friendly, easy, 
lightly spiced, beautiful sauce, and you can have it with any of the. It works across the cookbook, but also, why not use it in making lasagna or meatballs or masaka or any of those other lovely, rich tomato sauces that you might want a zing behind, you know, which is what we do in my house. So yeah, that's where Charlie sauce comes from. I hadn't thought of this question until uh, we started this conversation, but you've alluded now a few times to the fact that until recently, uh, and that your work is part of this, that this food hasn't really been, uh, I guess we would say codified. Mm -hmm. I just wonder, uh, I didn't feel the weight of this reading it. I mean, it feels like a book written with a lot of confidence and, and it is also very personal, which I want to get to in one second. But uh, I'm just wondering if you felt the burden um, or the privilege, I guess you could look at it either way, uh, of a certain uh, heightened responsibility writing this book at this time, being among, as you describe it, uh, among the first to make an effort like this. Yeah. Um, thank you for the question, Andretsley. And yes, you know, as I said, the, at the time of writing this in 2013, 2014, there was no reference point for me in the UK. I don't think there would have been a reference point for me in the United States either. There was no, um, I think probably there might have been a couple of small you know, self-published books out there in the world. Like one of my girlfriend's mothers gave me South of the Sub-Sahara cookbook written in the 50s by a white woman. You know, <laughs> it's like... Right, 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 of course. <laughs> of course. I had that, but um, it wasn't really a thing. So there was no, you know, like canon to refer to. There wasn't this long list of other chefs I could be like, oh, how have they done this? Or, you know, so, yeah, that was an intimidating um, thing to be faced with. And also just as a business owner working in a really competitive field of hospitality and catering and, you know, restaurant world and so on, you know, I did feel a lot of pressure that, and especially because it grew so quickly and started inspiring other businesses so quickly, I really felt this pressure that I couldn't fail. You know, it's like suddenly I was representing, I went from representing myself in my, you know, in my live workspace in Hackney Week <laughs> and being this, you know, having this kind of bohemian life of, you know, having loads of strangers in my flat every Thursday to Saturday and cooking for them and then, you know, writing and reading the rest of the time as some kind of loose existence. To then a book coming out and kind of being rocketed into the spotlight as an expert on Ghanaian cuisine and yada yada. So, yeah, it was a huge responsibility and I didn't take it lightly. And I went to a lot of pain to make this as personal as possible, which is why it's called Zoe's Ghana Kitchen, because it's like I really didn't want people to assume that this was it everything that I have to say about Ghanaian food is everything that is is to be said about Ghanaian food because that is certainly not the case and you know I come from a lens which is this the very lens of my identity this kind of third culture expressing um, its duality um, its tripality in fact through cooking Ghanaian food growing up in London and through exploring Ghana so cooking in Ghana and London and then taking that food to various parts of the world, you know. So I've tried to be as sensitive as I could at the time and as, you know, um, cognizant of cultural appropriation. And, and I'm not just going to say it's been, of course, there's been criticism along the way because whenever you're first or new um, at something, there's always some people who are purists and will have something, you know, negative to say about you breaking from tradition. But overwhelmingly the response has been extremely positive i mean it's still going this many years later so 
must have been doing something right, you know? Well, it's funny because you just uh, teed up the my last question perfectly for me. You know, you just, I didn't even think of it in these terms, but you, you, you know, you mentioned that your name is in the title of the book, that this is not presented as, um, I mean, thank God, it's not presented as a, you know, a textbook. It is, it has the the energy and the vibrancy and the, I should say, I haven't mentioned the, the beautiful photography uh, of what most people would expect from a, you know, fairly commercial mainstream cookbook. But to your point that it's, uh, that your name is in the title, um, I, I'd love to know about how difficult or easy a decision it was to include uh, a handful of recipes that are as personal as it gets. And these are the recipes that I would call them mashups, but uh, recipes that combine the backgrounds of your two parents, Ghana and 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 Irish. Yeah. Um, this to me, I, I personally, and I'm not, we've never met before, but I, I, I don't mean this at all insincerely. Uh, this, that is the kind, as someone who's collaborated on a number of cookbooks, that's the kind of thing that I would have encouraged a chef to include in a book. I think that makes this book so personal. And that when I got to it, that was such a surprising inclusion that I just absolutely loved it. I'm just wondering how close a call that was for you. And if maybe you could just tell listeners about one or two of your favorite recipes in that section. Yeah. I mean, my poor old mum gets left out all the time in this conversation and she brought, and you know, that side of my culture brings so much to how I cook. Like, I think one of the things people will be forgiven for not understanding or not knowing is just how similar these two cultures are, despite how distant they are geographically and, you know, in most people's minds culturally. You know, they're both um, cultures that have a strong sense of family as core, core and, you know, it takes a village and they're big feeders, they're big on religion, they're big on dancing and celebration, they're big on funerals, they're big on weddings, you know, like there's there's so many similarities in the cultures. And as I said, my mum was really pivotal in allowing, not allowing us, but making space for that cuisine to, to, to be in our home, whether or not my dad was around. Um, and encouraging me to connect with it and, you know, keeping it around and alive and buying me the ingredients I wanted and stuff. So I couldn't have that book. Um, And, you know, the fact she's my mother and she's like all of her politics informs who I am as much as my dad. So I really wanted to celebrate her and I wanted to celebrate them together because, you know, I used to do supper clubs every St. Patrick's night called Ghana Get Irish, and I would do this kind of a menu where I would bring these two cultures together and just have a really good, like, knees up <laughs> with it. Um, so, you know, one of the ones I love in that section is the mussels and groundnut broth because the groundnut broth is based off in Katsinkwan. And what people might not know about that dish is, as I said, it's very ubiquitous across West Africa. But we all do it very differently. So it can be a very sort of light um, peanut broth or it can be a very rich and thick stew or it can be, you know, there's a lot of variance in between a very thin peanut broth and a very thick peanutty stew. And so I wanted to be able to, and because we do surf and turf with that in Ghana as well, I wanted to introduce the seafood that was so um, strong of presence and part of my Irish um, connection with food and so obviously mussels from Bantry Bay so mussels steamed in the groundnut broth is just like this perfect evocation 
of Ireland and Ghana having fun on the you know on the beach together or something. And the other good one that I love actually is the um, Scotch eggs <laughs> because just because of how I can sneak the ingredients in. Sometimes it's just fun to like be like, you know, with a recipe. Yeah, but what if you swapped everything out for Ghana's ingredients and how would it taste then? And so the the Scotch egg is kind of a fairly uh, recognisable Irish thing. It's also quite English to be fair, but to do it with Clonakilty black pudding, which is the best black pudding in the world, Clonakilty Irish black pudding, and, and to then use ma- you know, mashed uh, yam, not just mashed yam into the potato, but to do it in the style of Otto, which is this famous celebratory egg dish in Ghana around the naming ceremonies and birthdays and weddings. So to have the Otto mash in there and then for the crumb to be um, Gary, which is, you know, grated cassava, grated and air-dried cassava, which is a gluten-free uh, crumb, essentially. That's not how it's normally used, but I panne the Scotch um, egg and panne most things in Gary, honestly, because it's a delicious crunch. <laughs> um, so to be able to, like, bring... You know, just to show people how easy it can be to merge cultures um, as well. And just because it's just fun to show off different ways you can use those ingredients. Um, so, yeah, those are two of my favourites from that section. And, yeah, it's a big nod to my mum and my Irish uh, roots and Irish food roots. Um, and, you know, the Ghana Kitchen Supper Club le- legacy. <laughs> so just since we haven't met before and we're not sitting here, you know, face to face, is there anything about your book that I haven't asked you that you would like listeners to know? Oh, yes. What you haven't mentioned is the soundtracks. So thank you. I yeah, should have. Yes, one of please. the things that's really important for me, you know, the food was always a tool to a bigger conversation. And that's what I decided in twenty. 11 about Ghana Kitchen is like changing the narrative around food and giving people an access point to the culture. So food was just like this beginning to get people in around the table and have a, you know, open it up to music, open it to art, open it to literature and see what's great and wonderful about modern Ghana and modern Africa. And so the big part of that was aesthetically setting that tone for the environments where I was cooking and dining and feeding people. But um, music was a huge part of that. And um, so, yeah, I created um, a friend of mine, actually, um, a DJ, DJ Aries, created playlists, one to cook to and one to eat to, which are both available on Spotify. And there is a much bigger library of Zoe's Ghana Kitchen playlist on Spotify as well. But, yeah, in the book... I encourage people to have fun with that because it really does help to get you A, in the mood and people need to be in a good mood when they cook. Otherwise, the food just doesn't taste good. <laughs> if you're not in a good mood, you're not going to have the same love and joy for the process. And I really do believe that that goes into how the food tastes. So um, get in a good mood with the soundtracks. And then when you have your friends over for dinner, turn on the other soundtrack and then, you know, have this nice background evoking the bustle of a craft on a on a Saturday night and get in the mood and get tasty. And that's our show for today. Again, my great thanks to Zoe Anjanya for joining us and congratulations on the US publication of Zoe's Ghana Kitchen. You can link to where you can buy that at the episode description for today's show at andrewtalkstochefs.com or on Apple Podcasts, where those links are functional. Congratulations, Zoe. I hope you have a huge success with it. Andrew Talks to Chefs is produced by Table 12 Productions. The show is written, booked, edited, mixed 
and hosted by me, Andrew Friedman. If you would like to support us, we just ask that you do that by doing a social media post about the show, telling your friends about the show, and or rating or especially reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, which really does help people find the podcast. Our thanks, as always, to After School Special for our music. Please check out their album, Double Barrel, single Entendre on iTunes. And thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in, as always. And we will be back soon with another episode of Andrew Talks to Chefs. <laughs>